You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. My name is Charlie Hall. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you guys are here today, and, and um, I hope, you know, for the next uh, 35, 40 minutes, I'll kind of talk through some of my, um, some of my stuff, and then spend some time with some questions as well to make sure we can interact and talk a little bit. But, um, man, I, I wanted to start with some of my story at least. Um, and, uh, because I, I really am in a, in a moment where I'm trying to piece together my, my, my story, just my life, you know, what my life is. And I spent so many years, you know, just stumbling into the next thing, stumbling into the next thing that, um, you tend to lose track. I mean, just life just kind of takes you. And, um, and, and, and so much of that's just in God's sovereignty and providence. You know, He's moving you from thing to thing and using everything in your life, um, both, the, both the triumphs and, and the destructions. And, uh, and I've got to experience you know, a lot of that. So in my, here I am in my early 40s now, and uh, I know that I've got another, God willing, another 40 plus years to go, and um, it's like both exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. It's like I've already lived 40 years, and there's lots of ups and downs. I can't imagine what the next 40 is, but you're also like in a, in a stance where you're like, you, you trust that God's moving you from place to place and from thing to thing, and the painful moments He uses, and uh, it's all, it's all in, in Jesus' story, in God's story. It's, it's just being used, and so... Um, I'll just kind of start, and then and then we'll we'll ease into these notes. But uh, I, I grew up in a traditional Baptist church, and um, my parents, you know, took me, made sure I, I went. You know, I, anybody from the Baptist background, probably quite a few of you. Um, but I mean, I learned the Bible um, by sword drills. Remember sword drills? Um, so I'll tell you what a sword drill is later. Um, but the sword drills, you know, you, you memorize the books of the Bible. They give you a book and a verse, and you're like, you know, you're in a race against other people. Like, thumb through it and find it, and you find it, and you put your finger down, and you step forward. And uh, so I did all that, and uh, I grew up like that, learned the scriptures like that. And um, I, I have um, only great gratitude for my mom giving me jelly beans every time I memorized a, a verse. Because I learned lots, learned lots of scripture that way, lots of jelly beans. Um, so I grew up in that church, and um, beautiful things happened to my heart there. Lots of preparatory work, and that God was doing. Um, but around the age of, I think thirteen, I remember a significant moment. I still can remember where I was standing in the church. I can, I can remember my feelings. I can remember looking around. I say this with with as much humility as I can pretend to have, but um, that was supposed to be funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, at 14, I looked around the room and I thought, man, these people, they're singing the, these songs, but it just feels so distant from them. And that's such a judgment and such an accusation. And so, you know, for a 14 year old to be like, well, I'm leaving this church because they're not singing like, like a concert. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. So, um, so you know, from 14 to about 17, um, I just kind of continued down my own, my own track, you know, and just uh, enjoyed, you know, 
junior high and high school and tried to be tried to be awesome and uh, partied and got to the end of myself around 17. And um, at 17, I, I just said, God, I, I got to know if I got to know if you're real, because this life feels very empty um, without knowing, you know, if, if you're real. And then if you're real, like just thinking, re doing re reverse engineering, if God is real, then we're crazy not to like go all in. And so I, I did that the best I knew how. I was just kind of in my room praying. And, and um, within a couple of weeks, I just sensed God had my heart. Like everything changed. The way I saw life and people and my hunger for the scriptures. And I just remember at night I would sit in my room and just try to read through the, through the Bible. And I, it wasn't that anybody told me to do that or I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I just was like hungry to read the Bible. And there was so much like spiritual hunger inside of me. And um, so uh, I started going back to church, to that church around that time and, and you know, started leading for my youth group because I played the guitar and sang and, and um, that's what you did in the early 90s. If you played and sang, you, you were a worship leader somehow. So, um, and maybe it's still a little bit like that now. I keep thinking we're growing out of that, but then I'm like, no, I don't know if we are. Um, so. I did that for a while and it was really like, I just, I, it was, um, I used the word last night in the panel, but it was just emulation. Like I, um, the people that were leading before me were doing hand motions in their songs for youth group. And so that's just what I knew to do. And I literally did think I was like upping the, the value of the worship time by pulling in a song like knocking on heaven's door. And because I was super into Guns N' Roses. And I thought, man, Guns N' Roses, worship leaders. Turns out they're not. But um, so um, I started slowly during that time. Like I'm 17. I'm back in church. I'm I'm engaging worship. I'm I'm on fire for Jesus. I'm just full of um, full of uh, just satisfied in Him and my affections and my heart and my desire and my intentions were all toward Him for him. I was drawing deep lines in the sand with my friends that I'd, you know, engaged uh, different styles of life with, you know, from junior high and high school. And um, so all that was going on. And then I started meeting these other guys from other churches, you know, that were like, they're just a little bit older than me. One guy was a, a, a man, a businessman. And, and uh, these guys were showing me something outside of the Baptist church that I'd never seen and that I'd been warned against. Um, the charismatics and so uh, these guys took me to these things that were like three-hour worship and prayer times and um, I mean I was like this is this is crazy this is nuts and there was no order there was no organization to, in my mind it didn't feel like any of that and so um, but my heart there was something in my heart that was being like you know that was starting to rumble and I, I saw a whole new picture of what worship leading was at that time. And so uh, from there, man, I just, I just started like, um, you know, you're, when you're in, the, the older we get, the more, the, the more we, we've read, the more we've heard, especially in this day and age with podcasts and everything. It's like we're learning at just high speed rates. Um, but then, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't learning. I mean, I was reading the scriptures. Um, I was being mentored, um, but I wasn't like reading books and listening to podcasts. And I was just a hungry kid. 
a hungry follower of Jesus. And so, you know, just as we, it's just as we frame liturgy here in a second, you think about, that's beautiful. I mean, a hungry follower of Jesus, a thirsty follower of Jesus, he'll, he's going to meet that person. And he did. He, he just always met me, in my, whether I was in my room or on a walk or with my friends um, um, or at a charismatic service or, or my, my traditional Baptist church service. He just kept meeting me over and over. And then as I started to engage what leading worship was, he started meeting people. I mean, he started really showing up. And I would be like, um, I think, like, let's sing that part again or let's lift our hands up in this moment. Just not for any reason except to show like God that we're hungry for him and he would just of course I know he's present but he would just come on in he would just descend on a room you just felt the room change you know something in the last you know 15-20 years that we've kind of grown accustomed to in a, in a sense it's like okay we, we're engaging uh, the presence of God God in the scripture and he's engaging us and this is just normal but in that time for me and my experience it was like, this is, this is brand new. This has not ever happened. But I just want to point out, like, a hungry, vulnerable, thirsty followers of Jesus, a group of room of those people, that's, in some ways, I just want to free everybody up and be like, that's a, that's a lot. That's actually maybe in some ways better than a really intelligent liturgy. Just a hungry group of people. And God through the years has met those people over and over and exploded in history and changed the church and renewed the church and revitalized the church and those pockets of people are still around today and it's easy to point our finger at them sometimes because we understand smart church and smart liturgy which which do have a lot of a lot of like uh, um, power in them so I, I, you hear me talking about this I'm not talking about we're throwing liturgy out I'm talking about trying to find a way to value both these things so they flow together so a hungry group of people um, so then, um, you know, as I engaged my mentors and the people that they were spending time with, we, we decided, hey, we should plant a church. And so there was a bunch of college kids, you know, my age, me and my friends, and then uh, uh, several families with young kids. And we were like, let's be a hungry group of people that gather and meet with Jesus. And it was just super simple. I mean, it was all really like, we want to experience Jesus and run after him. And when people run, when people find themselves in the room, they find themselves overwhelmed with the presence of God. And that was kind of our story, you know? And I'm sure there was a richer story amongst the older guys. But for me, as like a 19-year-old, it was like, that was our story. It was like, we're just hungry people for Jesus. So um, we gather, and this group is like, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to just talk about some times and frames of times that some of you may, may or may not be familiar with. But so this is like the mid 90s at this point. And um, there's something in the church that's kind of flowing around parts of the church that they, they now will look back and call the renewal movement. And uh, this renewal movement was really bizarre. I mean, people would laugh uh, in hilarity for 30, 45 minutes. And the assumption was it was the Holy Spirit. People would weep for 45 minutes and an hour, and the assumption was the Holy Spirit. People would, would wail for an hour. And this is the context that I learned really how to lead worship in. So m the guys that were above me would say, hey, man, um, we're going we're gonna to start to pray and worship. You, you play the guitar, and, um, 
and we'll just start to see what happens. So I would start to sing. People would just sing. They're so hungry. And that's just such a value. That hunger is such a value. That thirst for Jesus is such a value. They start to sing, and then all of a sudden, like, just pockets of the room would start breaking out in some sort of, like, insanity, beautiful insanity. And um, the guys that were kind of leading me would come up behind me and whisper in my ear and just say, you know, just focus on Jesus. You know, just look around the room and focus on Jesus. And that was kind of a lot of my, you know, first probably five, ten years of leading worship. Bizarre. So I went from, you know, this little traditional church, this hyper-charismatic church. Well, then, you know, you speed up a handful of years, and God is start, starting to do something different with that group of people. And around the early 2000s, it seems like God's, if it was God doing the things that were happening, he was changing gears, pulling his hands back a little bit. And we as a group of people just didn't quite know where we were anymore. And so we became like an emergent church, you know, where we were, we were kind of feeling our way through things you know, a little bit, making our services up as we went along, you know. Not, not so different than what we did before, but we were just kind of floating through, trying to figure it all out. And uh, we did that for, for a while. And during all this time, my, um, my public music career is growing, my itinerant ministry is growing. I'm traveling and leading in churches, leading at conferences, going to other countries and leading, meeting other parts of the church that I didn't even know existed. My, my, the, my view of the church was just expanding over the years, just growing, growing, growing. I was like, my gosh, this thing is like a massive tapestry of just so many unique ways of seeing the, the scriptures and God. And, and there's, you know, everyone's kind of a little bit off, a little bit off, a little bit off. There's some good stuff happening here, some good stuff happening here. But I was getting the whole picture of it. Now, this is the, <clears throat> the crazy part is, um, is around uh, the mid-2000s, I was kind of in the prime of ministry and the prime of what I thought life was. And um, I had no idea. Um, and there's all kinds of faults in me having no idea. Um, but I had no idea that my life was falling apart at the same time. And thank you. <laughs> and uh, um, that's exactly what I said with some other words around it. Um, but um, I had no idea that my life was falling apart at the time. And um, I was, uh, so around the mid 2000s, um, there's a series of events that unfolded that I sat, I sat in that with, I mean, um, so much like, um, misunderstanding and so much like I, I couldn't be more surprised that I'm here right now. That, um, and the pain was so excruciating and life felt so upside down and nothing made sense anymore. And all, I disdained every book I'd read and I became hyper cynical. And, um, and I sat in the back of the church that I'd planted and been a part of for 12 years. I sat in the back of it after all of that ministry and all of that interaction with God and all that leading of His people. And I sat in the back and I had one of my kids here and one of my kids here. And I looked around the church and I thought, I don't belong with these people. These are not my people. I'm not their people. I'm way too messed up for these people. And um, it's just such a weird moment. Like, okay, you know, I'm 15 to... 18 years into like pursuing Jesus, loving his church, sharing the gospel, 
doing the disciplines. You know, I'd, I'd, I can say that I walked in character. You know, I know that we're riddled with sin, um, but I walked in mostly apparent character. And here I am in the back of the church going, I'm too ill for these perfect people. That's how I saw it. So that led me into um, the next probably three years I became church homeless. And I thought, There's, that's how I felt. Um, I thought, it's the church people. So if you, if you go back to when I'm 14, I look around, I see everyone singing, and there's, it feels cold to me, and I've got my finger pointed out. I'm like, it's the, it's the church people. And here I am like 10, 20 years down the road, probably 20-something years down the road, uh, in my late 20s, and I thought, it's the church people. <laughs> They're the problem. So here I am again. So I spent about three years, probably two years with no church, and then I engaged the Episcopal Church for a year in there because I started feeling like that. The first couple of years I didn't go to church, I felt like I was detoxing in a way, you know. Um, I'm by no means recommending that, and I'll tell you why later. Um, but um, that third year, I started going to Episcopal Church. I was doing noonday communion, which is beautiful because like, it was like 20 minutes long. And it was the gospel, and it was communion, and you just, it just felt short and simple and engaging. And I was like, this is awesome. Um, but my life was just like the, the, the things that had happened a few years before that that set me in motion. It had caused so many cracks to start, the cracks that were probably already there. Kind of like when you have a, a busted plastic solo cup, and you put a little pressure on it. And you, you didn't see the cracks before you put the pressure on it and all of a sudden there's all these cracks that come out. Well, that was my life. I probably had all these cracks. But now the pressure was pushing down. The cracks were more obvious and they get more and more obvious. And um, so literally I, there, was this, there was this day um, I was walking into my, into my, into my work and uh, I was kind of like having this conversation inside of my head uh, with some people and I was like yelling at them and uh, you know how you do that I hope you do that um, otherwise this is really weird <laughs> um, but I'm just freaking out on them and then I look up and the lady that's um, that works next to my office she's outside on her smoke break and she's just her eyes are huge and she's got her, her cigarettes just stuck up here and I'm doing the whole thing like out loud you know and so it was like, there was this moment like, I, I've gone crazy. I'm literally crazy now. I'm, I thought I was having this conversation in my head. It's all outside. I walked, you know, the four or five blocks down a noonday, noonday communion. And I was going, God, I feel insane. I feel insane. And I went through the communion and we got to the part, the mystery of faith, where it says Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And within a few days, uh, I wrote a song called Mystery. It says, um, Jesus Christ, my sanity. Jesus Christ, my clarity. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Oh, that's part of the show. Um, just kidding. Um, so, uh, man, I engaged that moment, and I started to see, like, oh, my gosh, there's, there's a lot of power in the sacrament, and there's healing in Jesus. There's life in Jesus, and here I am pulling myself out of community, you know, trying to walk with God, trying to stay in character, feeling crazy, and trying to pursue this whole time, make it up myself, you know, touch base with a few older men that walk with God so that I can say I'm, a, I'm accountable, you know, meet with my, with my band and, 
So make sure like, okay, they, I'm known, people know me, I'm accountable. You know, all this stuff's going on. And I start to realize I need, I need church. I haven't even hit my notes yet, but I'll go through those pretty fast. Um, church is not, and I know many of you guys know this, but this is really important. Um, for a worship leader who is leading in the church, you, you do understand that it's Jesus' wife. And you can't point your finger and call her a name. And you can't even, like, be cynical. I mean, we, we can. We can go through these stages. But there's something mean about it when you start going, this is his bride, this is his wife. And it's one thing for me to fight with my wife over here. It's another thing for one of you guys to pick a fight with my wife. It's going to be bad. Or at least I'm going to try to make it bad, <laughs> depending on how big you are. Um, come out with some serious scratch marks, brother. Um, so uh, um, so I, I really started seeing, like, I need the shelter. Like, I mean, God set up the church so that there's this spiritual shelter over you and over your people through the pastors and elders and the authority of Scripture. And He literally sets it up over you to protect you and to watch over you. That's why it's so important to find a good church, to find a church that really will, the, the guys that are over you, or if you're a guy that's over your people, that you're really like going, well, this is a big deal. I'm actually one of the people that God uses to protect the people that are here. It's crazy. So I needed that. I needed that shelter. And then I needed community is like a net underneath the shelter where there's all this interconnection. And then the community is not people that are like me. They're not like a bunch of musicians, a bunch of songwriters, a bunch of artists that, are, that think in the gray and in the mystery and are always trying to figure it out together. But it's like, it's, it's a group of people that are like plumbers, electricians, doctors, and we all meet together and we create this web so that when my life starts to, to be dysfunctional, these guys see it in all kinds of different ways and patterns. So all this kind of led back to a place where we, the church I'm at now. So I've been there for six years and uh, I'm underneath a shelter. Um, I'm helping provide a shelter, and I'm a part of a net of people of relationships we call community. And inside of this shelter in, in, in this net, and we're actually together in lots of ways. We're in this t together too, like your, your brothers and my three sisters, my 50 brothers and my three sisters that are in the room here. And um, we're, we're together, like we're family. We're, we're not different. We're here together. And so um, I, say, I say all my journey because... I think sometimes, um, I, I mean, I did it yesterday. I did it this morning. I look at Bob Coughlin. I'm like, man, he's just a, a cool fatherly man that's made it all this way and he's got, he's got no problems, you know, and I don't know the ins and outs of his life. But I tend to look and go, ah, man, one day I'm going to get it too, you know. Or I look at someone in a moment and you take a snapshot of their life and you're like, boy, they got it all together. That's amazing. I bet it's like that all the time. And when you compare and compare and compare, you're constantly unsettled. And so part of why I wanted to bring my story into it was so that you go, well, that guy's not unsettled. I mean, that guy's not settled. And he's still going. And I will say this, I don't have the assumption that I'm ever going to actually feel like settled, whatever that feeling is. I think in Jesus, I've got a peace that passes my comprehension 
That's my settlement. I think I've got forgiveness in Jesus. That's my settlement. But I assume the rest of my life and the rest of my life with, with my wife and my family is going to be like, I'm trying to find out, God, what you're doing and where you're doing it and how you're doing it and how I need to repent and how I need to confess and how I need to adjust, how I need to change. And I'm just a broken man. So that's number one is I don't have it figured out. Number two is you think about the story like, Here's a young guy that's in love with Jesus. Here's a young guy that God is using. Um, here's a guy that's like growing in Christ and in love for the church and traveling the United States and the, and the world and getting to know all kinds of parts of the church and success in ministry that can also sit eventually in the back row of a church that he helped plant and serve and go, I don't fit with these people. So when we talk about liturgy, I just don't, I want to be smart in terms of like, scriptures and how God lays out the gospel. I want to be smart like that, but I also want us to understand we are the thirsty people. We are the weak people. We are the hungry people. We are the unsettled people. Even the people that are leading it are in some form or fashion, they're unsettled and there's chaos. Now there's also the victory of being a son or a daughter and all that Jesus has done. And I stand in the stretch of those two things. I stand with shaky hands and I stand in the victory as a son. And I know all the power that I have under the blood of Jesus. I know how God looks at me. I don't always feel the way that I think he looks at me. I don't always feel that, but I know that he's looking at me in a way that I'm a son. And so I stand in the middle of those two stretches. And I think when when guys and girls go over here to, well, we're just weak, frail people. They design a liturgy, a church service that's not as helpful as it could be because they just feel like weak, frail people with no confidence. And then I think on this side of things where they just stand, they just stand in the sonship and the victory of Jesus over here and they stand in the older brother role and they stand in like, I'm doing it right, I'm okay, life's going perfectly. Over here, they create a service or a liturgy that's unhelpful to the broken and the people that actually know they're thirsty. So you got these two extremes. And what I want to try to do is take these two things, pull them together, and be like, I am weak and trembling, but I am a son of God that's received the grace of Jesus Christ. And so when I lift the cup and when I lift the bread, it has a, it has a completely different meaning to me than when the older brother just does it right and performs the task correctly. Okay. So I, there's a, let me just, you just jot down these three scriptures. They're all kind of in the same vein and I'll just read one of them. But <clears throat> so I called this the liturgy, the artist and fathering. And I had enough people go, <laughs> is it, I have no idea what that's about, but it sounds so intriguing. I'm going to go. So um, so really, literally, it's about like liturgy, the artist and fathering. So it's not as mystical as, as, uh, as we think it might be. But I am going to give you my, just my, my two pennies on, on uh, liturgy. I'm going to give you my two pennies on the man that stands inside of the liturgy or the, or the, the woman that stands inside of the liturgy. And then I'm going to talk about fathering. Now, I've got four kids, um, but... Um, I'm not talking about just fathering them. I want to talk about living your life in a way that's, that's passing on what we're talking about in this room. Um, 
which is really crucial, and it's part of the glory of God, and it's part of a, you know, a, a beautiful descent. And so we'll talk about some of that. So the, the three scriptures, it's not, um, it's not different from what, from what I just talked about, but it's Isaiah 55.1, Revelation 3.17, and John 7.37. And those all have to do with thirsty people. Isaiah 55.1, Revelation 3.17, John 7.37. So I'm going to attempt to do this next, um, to do my notes in the next 20 minutes so that we have a little bit of time to do some Q&A. Okay, so the first thing I want to do is just to talk about, um, I'm going to give you, I think it's eight uh, metaphors for worship and liturgy. Um, the reason why I don't want to just describe liturgy to you and the order that it's supposed to be in is because I want to do the work behind the work like because it affects your soul and how you stand in this thing. So I'm using metaphor. And the reason why I'm using metaphor is because I, I led worship a few years ago. I came off the stage and I was like, I don't even know what it is that I do. And I've been doing it for 20 plus years. And so I just started going like, God, what is it that I do? And he starts showing me like little pictures. So I'm going to do this real quick. Um, not all of this is metaphor. Most of it's metaphor. The first one is just worship and liturgy is delight. And it's just orienting your affections. It's just delighting in Jesus. It's delight. Number two is fountain. Fountain, worship and liturgy is a fountain. It's a meditation on truths. It's flipping lies upside down. It's describing Jesus. And this is a beautiful idea that if worship and liturgy is a fountain, when I sing the truths of God, I sing them, they, they fly up and they, they're a blessing to God. And then they fall down and they're, they're a blessing to people. They wash across the people. I had a homeless man. I was in a, in a kind of a bummed state um, one Sunday morning and I was just sitting there while people were singing with my forehead in my hands. And I hear this homeless man, uh, these homeless guys come in our church and half the time they're drunk, but they're like singing. And I was just, li I was sitting right next to him and I was just listening to him sing the truths of God. And they were just like, by the end of the song, I was standing back up. I was like, this guy can sing this. You know, my homeless soul can sing this too. So that was uh, uh, number two. Number three is missile. Worship and liturgy is a missile that scatters the enemy of God. Number four is worship and liturgy is a window. A window to see into God's heart. And I'd like to reference Revelation 4 on this. Window is seeing into God's heart. It's exploring Him. It's beholding Him. It's gazing on Him. It's taking Him in. The next one is worship and liturgy is a megaphone. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Whenever I start putting liturgy together, I just sometimes have this picture in the back of my head of like huge megaphone holding up to my, my lips. Uh, the next one is gratitude. Worship and liturgy is a, is a gratitude. Two more. Worship and liturgy is an anchor. It's a, it's a grounding in the gospel in a tornadic world, in a world that tosses you to and fro. The doctrines toss you to and fro, and worship and liturgy is an anchor. And the last one of an inexhaustible list of descriptions is worship and liturgy is an arrow. 
It points us to Jesus' heart and a mission for the world. So that's kind of a big description of liturgy. Um, it's got some metaphor in it. It helps. Uh, it doesn't help like um, when I when I talk like this to some people that are like super intelligent, super theological, super black and white. They're like, I don't understand what you're saying. And if you're in that room now, I don't know how to help you because I haven't learned that skill yet. But um, these are some these are some metaphors to help give you a picture of the work behind the work of liturgy. And then I've got four things that I see what litur- that I see liturgy is. This is a little bit more like next step down. Four things. Liturgy is Christ formation. It's out of Ephesians 4. Christ formation. Liturgy is gospel remembrance. To remember Jesus' work, his full work, his life. And many of you know, like if you if you literally take the unfold the gospel throughout your service and rehearse the gospel, that's a liturgy. And it's, a, it's one of the primary liturgies that people use, but they, they have lots of fancy names for that stuff in between. But basically what we're doing is forming Christ in people and rehearsing the gospel. The third thing is we're, or, we're ordering our affections. Because throughout the week, we, we, we love everything else. And so we crawl into church or we dance into church or everything in between. And what we want to do is to order our affections around Jesus again. Oh yeah, I remember. Jesus is first. He's key. He's the beginning. He's the central. He's the culmination of life. He's my everything. And I forgot to live like that. And everyone has. And so it's like, okay, he's central. That's, and then number four is just an, inter, an intersection with God's presence and his people. I think that's huge. If we can see through four, these four lenses and some of those descriptions, when you start creating your songs, song lists and your order of service and the rubrics and how it goes back and forth and who's doing what, um, if, if all this stuff can inform that, then you start to think just a little bit differently. All right, so that's, that's kind of liturgy. And um, now I want to I take a brief minute, and I've, I've, I've got a an abbreviated group of um, descriptions of the man or the woman that stands in this place as a liturgist, or I called it an artist. Um, I honestly, I'm, I'm debating right now on, on just the word artist in a, in a church. I believe there's artists in church. I am an artist in a church, but um, church is such a collaborative family thing. And the idea of artist is so individual. So there's something about, um, um, I'm still using the word because I feel like it does, it's, he is an artist in terms of like painting a picture of, of the gospel, painting a picture of um, the path that we need, to, we need to run on and putting songs in place. But um, this, this man is interesting. This woman is interesting. And um, again, if we stand um, as the artist of liturgy, um, as the older brother in the prodigal son story, then we stand inside of it um, arrogantly as if we've done it all right and I am separate from you and I am now going to show you how it's supposed to be and how you are supposed to be. So come be like me. That's what the older brother does. Now, it's, I'm so much more, I am probably an older brother in so many ways 
because I have so many accusations and judgments for people. But um, I'm equally like, I'm more comfortable with people viewing me as um, the prodigal son because then um, there's less expectations and I hate expectations. I hate failing them. I hate feeling them. But as the, as the prodigal son, as the runaway, I can be like, well, of course I failed you. <laughs> That's just what I do. Um, but to stand, in this, uh, to stand in the stretch as the artist, I just want to describe just a few things of the man that stands in this moment. I, I call him kind of the, the line next to artist before I mention four descriptions. I call him the uncostumed kingdom explorer. So th- this, is, this is my goal and this is what's happened in my life is like um, Jesus is so after my heart that he's willing to pull off my costume um, out of love. And you get, you get so comfortable in your costumes and in your self-image and how people view you, that you just start to think that your costume is you. And uh, God says, no, no, no. I'm so much more interested in totally pulling that, that off of you and letting you stand as that thirsty, hungry, vulnerable man or, or woman that needs Jesus in front of people. But there's also like confounded and combusting with like, I, I love Jesus and I believe in what he's done and I'm standing in this firm in what he's done and I'm an explorer, but I'm willing to like be exposed at the same time. I think of, again, I want to reference Revelation 4 because if you'll go read back through it, there's this, there's this order of things that happens where there's this trumpet sound and this exclamation mark and John is like, what? And the, the door or the window of heaven is, is open. And the angel says, you got to come look at this. And he looks inside and he just starts to behold and point and describe Jesus. It's a great worship leader moment in there. Like, here's a guy that's beckoned by the Holy Spirit. There's a clap. There's an exclamation mark, and there John is. It says he starts to think less about himself, and he starts to look at Jesus and go, I want to explore, I want to point, and I want to describe who this man is. It's Jesus Christ, the center of everything. So um, this artist that stands in the liturgy, that helps create the liturgy, is ready to be, um, ready to have that costume pulled off, but he's definitely like this explorer and this pointer and this beholder. So uh, now I'm going to describe four things, and it's going to kind of unfold that sentence, I think, a little bit. Um, This artist is communally minded. And what I mean by that is you're not separate from your community. You're a part of your community. You're in your community. You're not disappearing with your band. You're in your community. You're not a separate thing. You're inside these people. And someone might be not as cool. Someone might have less or more money. Someone might be a doctor. Someone might be more intelligent. Someone might be less intelligent. Someone might be poor. Someone might be divorced. Someone might be addicted. And those are your people. Because you were were all those things inside in one way or another anyway. So those are, they're all pictures coming back at you. Those are your people. And um, 
just to kind of expound on that, you don't lead a blurry, um, a blurry f- group of people, a blurry face group of people. It's not just a crowd of people that you can't see their face. You as, an, as a liturgical artist are standing in front of a group of people that have uh, stories and they have faces and they have tears and they have laughter. And you as, a, as an artist, shepherd, you stand in front of them as a part of the community and you see their stories and faces. Um, the second thing this artist, worship leader, liturgist needs to be, and this is one of my favorites because this is, this is how I started with my story, is this man or woman has a tilled up heart or soul. They understand that they're thirsty and that they're hungry and that they need Jesus. And what is so hard for so many of us is all the people that just, that just seem like they're, they're not tilled up. They just seem, there's, there's no edges. There's, there's just, it, it appears to be like, in the image, it looks like everything's just fine. And so if you, f- if you feel opposite of that, you start to kind of crumble under that. Now, am I talking about, again, am I talking about being the opposite of the perfect image? No. I'm talking about standing as a son that knows what the gospel has done, but knows that you are part of the people that need Jesus. So you're a communal person. You're a tilled up person. You're, you're, you're yearning. You're thirsty. You know that your story is in Jesus. You know that, that the author of your story is God, and you love your author, so you love your story. Because if you hate your author, you probably hate your story. But you know that your story is is in God. And you love an examined life. You kind of love hate it. But you're willing to look at yourself and you're willing to hear people. And I think probably there was a lot of years where I was not willing to listen to people say to me like, hey, you need to check out this part of your life because this is something that could be like off. My immediate thought in my arrogance was like, Probably not. <laughs> but now I'm like, man, if anybody says anything, I'm like, maybe so. I mean, there's a possibility. So this tilled apart is willing to examine yourself. The unexamined life is hard to live. But the examined life is like, I'm kind of looking at myself. I'm kind of open-handed. I want to I wanna know. This is tilled up life. Number three, this artist, this, this liturgist, this worship leader, is a, is a man or a woman that beholds Jesus. There's this apprehension pointing at Jesus. There's this love for the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not a, um, when I say a beholding man or a beholding woman, they're looking at Jesus and they're beholding him and they're, they're crumbling underneath that in a way. I mean, it, it helps them buckle down and bow down. There's this beholding where you view Jesus as the beginning and the culmination and the centerpiece of life. And there's something in it where I just want to describe this. I just want to behold, look, explore, describe, and I want to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. I want to, I want to know, what are you saying, Holy Spirit? What do you want me to shout? Now, some liturgy is like this kind of cold, scientific liturgy where you're just kind of going through the motion. But the tilled up communal man or woman that is beholding Jesus doesn't go through liturgy cold. 
they are, they're just amazed. When they start, when I say the Apostles' Creed, and I get to the place where Jesus was resurrected from the dead, there's something in me that's like, not like I got to get to the end of the creed so that we can stay on time. There's something inside of my chest that bursts because Jesus is alive. And so it's like, hold on, we've got to stop right there. And we've got we've to say with like tears in our eyes, and we've got to shout and applaud this thing. And so it's not just a cold science of liturgy. It's an, un, it's an unfolding of a, a, um, a tilled up heart that beholds Jesus and looks at the people that they're with and goes, I know you guys. I know you ladies. I'm with you. And the last thing is, and I keep mentioning it, but it's just the, this artist, this liturgist, this worship leader is a rooted person. Th- their identity is in Jesus. Now, I know we all know how to say that. I know that the longer you're in your faith, that's one of the things that we hear the most. Your identity is in Jesus. Your identity is in Jesus. And, um, but this is just you and me standing as sons and daughters in the truths of Scripture. And we are weak, but we know God's power rests on our weakness. We know our identity in Jesus. And uh, we know how to stand in it. And we're amazed by Him. You think a son or a daughter when they look at their father and they know that they're a son or a daughter, the way that they announce the things in a service, the the stuff that we're going through, the way that you sing as a son or a daughter, how deep the father's love for us, the way you sing that is different when you know you're a son and you know you're a daughter. It's just different. Something, Something unique about it. Okay. So that's the liturgy. That's the artist. And then I'm going to try to hustle through this last piece. Um, the older I get, and so, so there are younger guys in the room, and there's probably guys in their 30s, and there's, there are some guys in their 40s in this room, and um, there's this beautiful piece of uh, just being a father, um, being a shepherd, being a pastor. Um, and so we say pastor, we say shepherd. I want to add the, just add that word father because the way a father stands in that moment is different than how someone who is trying to get the people to like him. It, it, it's just different. If I stand in front of my people and I feel deficit in my life and I'm, what I'm trying to do when I sing a song is to get you guys to like me, that's not leading worship. A father or a shepherd or a pastor goes, these are, these are my people, these are my children, these are my friends. I want them to look on Jesus and, and be amazed. So um, you think of uh, the baptism of Jesus and he goes into the water and he comes up and before he's done any ministry, the Holy Spirit lands on him and the Father says, it's my son, I'm well pleased with him. So we stand like that and we stand as a father and we stand um, in, let me just mention four ways real quick. And by four, I probably mean eight because in between the four words, there's an and. (laughs) It's just a way to trick you, really. Um, As a father, you stand in front of your people present and truthful. As a father, you stand in front of your people protective and peaceful. As a father, you stand in front of your people willing to bless and build something past yourself. 
And then as a father, as a shepherd, as a pastor, you stand in front of your people with grace and the willingness to play. Now, the, the grace is, um, I had a friend this last weekend say this to me. Um, it was, I say friend, he's more like a counselor, a therapist. Um, but he said, he said to me, he's like, he said, Charlie, there's so much shame in you and you need Jesus grace because when, when Jesus grace meets your shame, you're going to be totally different. And um, I know that sounds really simple. It's like, well, but we're talking about the true experience of grace meeting shame. And so when a pastor, father, shepherd stands in front of his, his friends and his sons and daughters and his brothers and sisters, and he stands in front of them and he's got grace in him and not a, a pointing finger like everyone else in the world that's pointing at us, saying that we're wrong and screwed up, but a father that stands and says, what you need is grace to meet you in your shame. And uh, there's something beautiful about that, as well as our willingness to play, like and just be children together. And there's, there's something about, I, some of these pictures, uh, I just started thinking like, how am I with my children when I'm at my best? <laughs> Not when I'm at my worst. When I'm at my best, how am I with my children? And that's, okay, I wanna be present with them. I wanna tell them the truth. I wanna protect them. I wanna offer them peace. I wanna bless them. And I want to be, um, I want to build them into something. I want to have grace for them. And I want to play with them, be with them. So I want to be the same way as I stand in front of my people at, at church. Now, so that's the liturgy. That's the kind of a, a short description of an artist and as a father and how all those things blend together. I wanted to, again, just to kind of close and then do some Q&A. I wanted to stand behind some of those words um, with some of the work that's behind the work because I think we're all trying to sit down going, how is he doing it? How is he doing it? How is he doing it? And all that means is we're just gonna emulate, 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 and we're never learning how to stand in what we're actually doing. And so if we can stand as a father, if we can stand as an artist, worship leader, liturgist, and if we can stand inside what the liturgy is supposed to be and how alive it's supposed to be from a son and a daughter for all the thirsty people that stand in the room, it's gonna really be an amazing transaction between uh, you and the people and us and God. So, the end. All right, I, I'm sorry, I, I talked a little bit longer than I wanted to, but we have about 10 and I'll stay a little bit longer um, if need be, but we have about at least 10 minutes on the schedule for Q&A if anybody has any questions. Hey, ma'am. Uh, yep. So, um, I'm trying to remember what I said, but I think, yeah, yeah. So, working definition for me is uh, forming Christ in people through. Uh, gospel remembrance that orders our affections in the presence of Jesus and family. Um, let me try to say it again. Forming Christ in the people 
through gospel remembrance that orders our affections around Jesus in the presence of God and our family, our brothers and sisters. What if I changed it every time? That'd be so funny. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> he says it different every time. It's driving me crazy. Uh, liturgy is forming Christ in the people through gospel remembrance that orders your affections around Jesus in the presence of God and the family. Now you can unpack that for days because just, just forming Christ in people is like, well, that's kind of big, you know? I'm going to need some help with that from Jesus in the Bible. Um, okay. Anybody else? Yeah? Some practical ways that we can break down the barriers between the stage and the people so that we're not seeing the crowd as a, as a blurry-faced crowd, but stories and faces. And I, I literally think that's what I mean. It's like we have to do the work, even if you're just like just the worship leader and like your job is to come up with the songs, you know, which is it's, that's a you, you really got to press yourself. If that's the only job your pastor's given you and they're like, just, just do the songs. What I'd say to you is like, yeah, do the songs. Read and stand in the scripture and just listen endlessly to the stories of your people that you're leading. Because there, again, there's something about, I'll just keep using how deep the Father's love. When you say that and, and you know how tilled up you are, but when you look out there and you're like, you see the, the, someone's story that you just heard, and you see their face, and you're like, man, I'm, I'm singing this on your behalf right now. I'm worshiping, but I'm an intercessor up here. And that's just a practical step. And the other step is like, just don't disappear. Don't do your five songs and disappear. And um, we gotta quit thinking of ourselves as special and, or insulating ourselves so nobody else knows us. You know, I think when we insulate ourselves, we, we People do see you separate, you know? They see me separate. And it's hard to not insulate yourself. It's easier, and it feels so much better when they're like, that is the best song singer ever. But when they get to know you and they're like, and he's super weird. <laughs> um, there's something freeing about that, of like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm super quirky. And, you know, at least half the people know it. And um, that, that's pretty freeing to me. So you just got to be intentional of like tearing down those walls and being with different kinds of people. It's so easy for me to just go sit with the band after they lead or I lead with them and just be like, cool, rock, awesome. I don't ever say those things, but, uh, <laughs> um, but it's easier for me to do that. Now, what's more difficult is for, my, for me to approach my peers, the other pastors, and, and, and then go to the people and start to hear their stories and not want their feedback, not, not wait for them to be like, you really led great today, but me going to them to hear their story 
not to get feedback, for them to hold a mirror up to me and say, you're, you're still great. We still like you. And we've got to crush that in us. I'm still getting that crushed in me. It just came up a week ago that I still have this issue of like a fluctuating value. And I, I don't think it here. I don't think I think it here. But something inside of me in here is like the whisper of the enemy is like your value fluctuates, Charlie. And people like you if you do good and they're not going to like you if you do bad. And that is crushing. And I've got to have God speak into that as a son as I come up from the baptism and he says, you're my son and I'm well pleased with you and I haven't even done anything yet. That's how I got to live. Another question? Yeah. Yeah. Now, being a part of, being a, I was a part of passion. I would still say I'm a part of passion. I'm definitely in relationship with those people. I'm not leading on the stage um, right now. I still have great uh, love and respect for all their leadership and who Louis is and as a father and friend to me. And um, he shows, he's still to this day, he and his wife, Shelly, will show up in the best of times and the worst of times for me. And, um, in some form or fashion. Sometimes they'll, be, they'll fly in to stand in a moment with me. Um, but I was with Passion for 16, 17 years. Um, and I've been, I've gone the last couple of years, but just kind of been um, with them praying and cheerleading and um, not flattery cheerleading, but like genuinely prayerfully cheerleading. And uh, those are people I love. The journey was bizarre because me as a worship leader, I just started in a place of pure love and just kind of go for it with Jesus. And that's what happened. And God used that. So in the very beginning, in like mid to late 90s, you just had to pour your heart out and, and God just would show up. And over the years, we keep tacking on more and more things to facilitate our hunger and to reveal our hunger through through all the things you have to do at a large in a larger setting or a larger conference to maintain attention and things like that so for me over the years um, I probably tend to need it to be more raw and vulnerable than um, I'm just not a great um, performer per se now there's um, there's I I don't point my finger at performance. I mean, we need performance so that we stay, so that there's no distractions from Jesus. You know, we need healthy performance. Um, I've had people tell me like, you just need an out-of-tune banjo and a guy sing. And I'm like, I'm close to being on your page, but I think that there's more to it than that. Yeah, if you had five people that were tone deaf and blind, it might work. But, um, <laughs> but, um, for many of us, we need like that access of like that. That's really beautiful. That's really amazing. That's really capturing. And so there's something in that big stage scene that helps lots of different kinds of people connect. For me, I think over the years, and especially as my life story started to unfold and I became more in touch with my weakness and my vulnerability, I, became, I had less and less ability to show up and prove anything to anyone because I was, I was in not prodigal rebellion, but prodigal, like, 
I'm coming home and I'm exhausted and I just could care less about what people think about me. The crazy thing about me and probably many of you is like, as soon as I got home and I felt the father's arms around me, I mean, it was like looking back at all the other prodigals, like that's how you come home y'all. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all, I think it's all, it's all so convoluted, but passion years are the amazing years. And I was having, I had to face myself in so many different ways, grow as a leader in front of a lot of people and uh, learn how to lead worship and in ways that it hadn't been being led like that, you know, early, especially early on. And so there was just so much learning, so much comparison. The comparison that I had to experience with the other worship leaders was just devastating sometimes. My greatest friends and my greatest fears all like combining, you know. And uh, so it was just, um, it was, I, I, I have great affection and no resentment for those for those years they taught me most of what um i stand in now so what would you suggest for souls wanting to stay hungry and filled up and you know listening to the spirit being at the god's presence and everything but in an environment that doesn't really encourage a lot of that yeah so the soul that wants to st stay hungry and thirsty and yearning and spirit-led and wants Jesus but is not in an environment um, that facilitates that, I think, one, you, it's the best idea in life is to grow where you are, um, that the grass is not greener on the other side. These are like my 90% rules. Like that's, I mean, that is true. You grow where you are. You feel the pressure. You feel yourself being compressed, turning into the, the pearl, you know, that God's creating. Um, and if you can learn how to become um, and be with Jesus in the midst of a, a group of people that's not facilitating that, then you're going to learn a lot. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a broken marriage in that um, if one uh, one of the people in the marriage is very uh, weak and not willing to change, when the other person can stay married but pull back a little bit and become what God's calling them to be, that per the other person will start to go, what, what is that? What is that? Like health can breed health. Dysfunction can breed dysfunction. So in a, in a church where craving for God is not facilitated, it doesn't stop your craving for God. It just means like, how are you going to submissively, obediently, humbly crave God in the midst of your experience around you. It's more work for you. But someone else held up their hand. The way I combat dryness and doubt in seasons is I identify with Doubting Thomas um, and I'm, I just kind of own, own the doubt and just go, God, I, I need to know you. I need, to, I need you to break into the locked room. You, did you guys read the story like the door was locked and then Jesus just appeared in the room? And then that's when, that's when Thomas was like putting his finger in the holes, which is just, I don't know, it's weird all by itself. But um, 
um, that's amazing. It's like God is the one really that can surprise us and jump into the locked room. Um, and the other thing is like, I'm, I'm not going to get this story right, but the, the father that had the son that kept like convulsing and throwing himself in the fire. And he said, um, and Jesus said, hey, if you'll, if you'll believe, I'll, I'll heal, your, heal your son. And the guy was like, he was hungry. And he said, I believe Help my unbelief. And I can see, like, and I know I'm maybe getting the picture wrong, but in my mind I felt that enough where I'm like, yeah, I believe. Help my unbelief, you know. And so when I'm leading through those moments, I'm kind of owning my, my doubts and my unbelief. And through the songs, this is the, this is the X factor of a worship leader or a leader from the stage is the man that, or the woman that can beat their chest while they're singing the songs. Like, I want to believe the things I'm singing. You know, the people go, me too, you know? And so there's what we're go, what any of you are going through is both extremely unique and not that unique. You know, from a, from a pain perspective or a traumatic perspective or a dry perspective, what you're going through is very unique. And between you and God and your family and your spouse and the people around you, you're going to work it out over time. At the same time, it does connect to like if I say um, brokenness, sin, doubt, uh, cynicism, anger, those are broad enough words where everyone go, yeah, I've got one of those. And I can say, let's all be thirsty and run to Jesus today. So there's something that we can lead in it. In, in it and out of it. And, man, a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. Yesterday you were speaking on, like, um, the, the issue of, like, emulating other worship leaders and other leaders that you look up to. Um, what would you say to a person who says, well, I know I struggle with that a lot. Um, you know, I'm like, man, they're doing this right. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it good. Yeah. Um, but, but how would you encourage someone? Man, just... The question has to do with breaking out of emulation. I, again, I think emulation is a good place to start. Um, it's, it's part of how we learn. It's part of how we knock the edges off of ourselves when we're like, oh, I had that wrong. Um, it's how we become non-judgmental, you know, when you're looking around and you're like, okay, I need to be, I need to watch that guy or that lady and, and be more like that. Um, but breaking out of it has to do more with like your identity in Jesus and your willingness to be viewed as um, um, your willingness to stand in front of a group of people and be you and to be a little naked and to lose the costume. And um, it's definitely, you know, to watch her, what, I, what I'm coming up against with younger worship leaders is they're watching YouTube videos and then they're comparing themselves and their crowds with what they saw as opposed to like I am me as a son or a daughter in front of this unique group of people standing in the moment with Jesus and how do I how, do, how am I present in this moment leading these people to interact and intersect with the God of the universe not to put on a costume of the video that I watched and accuse the people of not being the people from the video and then leading them in an awkward way that doesn't need to be led in that room but to to unzip costume be the broken man that you are but the son that you are and to detect the moment who who is in this room you know what am how am i supposed to be leading them 
What, what is it they need? What do I need? And then you just start leading out of it. So there's, there's some work to do, some examination, some, you know, some of your older friends, pastors giving you feedback and telling them you want to unzip the costume and, and, um, and be who you are. I know that I'm over now. Um, so um, I'm going to pray for you guys. And, uh, and then uh, you guys have an incredible day. So I appreciate you coming here. Appreciate you not leaving. Uh, that's, that's always a pleasure when people just actually stay um, and listen through the whole, whole thing. So, Jesus, I pray for all of us in this room, every man, every woman. I pray that we would know you with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. I pray, God, that you, in every single journey in this room, God, that you would connect them to you as the author of their journey, the author of their story, and that they would fall in love with you as, as the writer, and uh, that they would follow you through thick and thin and through every moment that, that cuts their legs out, that they, they would know the moment to lay there, they would know the moment to crawl, and God, that you'd pour your spirit out on your church, your beautiful wife, we thank you for we. I'm, I, I repent for ever pointing my finger at her, every name that I've ever called her. God, I repent, and I say thank you for her, and help me to spend the rest of my life beautifying her and preparing her um, to, to, to meet you one day, fully ready. And Jesus, we, we love you. Um, we want your name to be adored and embraced. In Jesus' name, amen.